Hello and welcome to the Maps Communications 2020 podcast, a series of podcasts where we explore various archives and collections. My name is Faith Williams and I'm joined today by Edward Weech, librarian for the Royal Asiatic Society. Would you like to introduce yourself and talk about how you came to be in your position? Thank you, Faith. Yes, so I have been librarian at the Royal Asiatic Society since March 2014, so just over six years. My background is in history and librarian uh, li library studies. So my first degree was in Asian studies. So that's how I have developed my own interest in, in Asian history. So working with the collections of the Royal Asiatic Society is a, is a perfect fit for my personal and professional interests because we have collections that run the gamut of history and culture from cultures right across, right across the continent of Asia. So not to sound um, like pointing out the obvious, Asia is a very big continent. So you would cover what sort of Turkey to China? Do you have Russia in there as well? So the, when the society was founded, it defined its area of interest as really being from what was then the Ottoman Empire. So that would be modern Turkey mm -hmm. right through to Japan and also taking into account the, the parts of Africa that had been most influenced by Asian cultures. Russia has never been a central part of the society's interest, but over the years, the society has developed interests in cultures of the Caucasus, which have been a very important point of exchange between the cultures of Europe and Asia. So the Caucasus is part of the society's area of interest. Otherwise, it's really everything from Turkey to, to Japan. That is a huge remit. What type Indeed. of material do you have in the collection um, in terms of sort of physical format and, and what it covers content-wise? So the, the, the physical formats in the collection cover books, manuscripts, artworks, archives, maps and photographs and, and some objects as well. So it's an extremely broad range of materials that reflects the, the origins of the society. It was founded in 1823 and the the collection was really instituted at the beginning by don't people by members donating their private collections to the society so that other people could benefit from them they wanted more people in 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 britain to be able to access books manuscripts and artworks that um, documented asian cultures so that you the, the knowledge that british people had about asia could could it could improve but the collecting policy at that time was was very broad so they were keen to take in books manuscripts paintings and and a very often quite eccentric range of of objects as well um, and over the years that has that original collecting policy has largely continued but it's been supplemented by more modern formats as those have come into existence so the society has now has thousands of photographs the earliest coming right at the from the earliest days of photography in the 1860s and coming right up until up until the present day so the the physical formats are very very diverse and as you can imagine that leads to challenges with with storage and documentation one of the strategic decisions that the society made in the 19th century was to de-emphasize its object collection simply because the amount of space that's required to store and display objects is, is, is so vast. So in the 19th century, the society tended to 
loan its object collections to other institutions, mainly the British Museum and what was then the Indian Museum, which later became integrated into the Victoria and Albert Museum. So the society's object collections can now be found in those institutions where they've been since really since the 19th century. But what we have now, we still have tens of thousands of books, about 2000 manuscripts, over a thousand artworks, uh, by which I mean paintings and drawings. We have a map collection. We have dozens of collections of personal papers of European Oriental scholars, so academics who've been interested in studying one or more aspects of Asian history and culture, and dozens of collections of photographs, some of which contain hundreds of photographs, particularly from India, Southeast Asia, and uh, China and Hong Kong. That's really interesting that um, so early on they were thinking about um, about managing the collection, about how they were going to fit it all in and conserve it and, and grow it and things like that. That's really early. Yes, well, they had the society had somewhat of a peripatetic existence in the 19th century, by which I mean they, they had to move premises a number of times. And every time you, you move premises, you're faced with the, the uh, question of what you do with what you have. Um, particularly if you're moving from a larger into a smaller premises. So, so, they, so they were faced with some very practical questions quite, quite frequently. Oh. So how do you spend an average day? Well, everyone knows no, no one day is quite like the next, but, mm -hmm. it, but the, the, the kinds of activities that I, I'm involved in from day to day, a lot of my time is taken up, is, is devoted to answering inquiries and helping members of the society and members of the public with their research and often focusing on collections that are owned by the society but sometimes pertaining to to talk to, to wider subjects so so research uh, answering inquiries is is, is is one of my main responsibilities we also run a reading room service so that is how people are able to come and look at the things that we have and the our reading room service is normally open two and a half days a week because all of our collections are what we would call special collections meaning that most of them are historic materials uh, um, which are irreplaceable they have to be looked at under supervision so it's an invigilated reading room service open two and a half days a week and because there's only two people at the society myself and our archivist who uh, work with the collections that necessarily takes up a great deal of our time as well but it is one of the most important things that the society does so we're, we're extremely happy to do it otherwise I normally have one or more research projects on the go focusing on some part of the collection or talks to prepare to promote and explain and interpret the collections to 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 different groups so that's something which I'm often engaged in and then the the activity which most librarians are concerned with but which often is is the last thing which you have time for is cataloging so we, we have very large and diverse collections and we often don't have we still have a lot of material which is not well catalogued so when I can find the time I try to catalog more of our books pamphlets manuscripts and, and, and other collections so 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 between those those four things that tends to take up most of my time do you have a large backlog of um material that still needs catalog then 
yes although we've made we've made substantial inroads into it in, in over the years even when i took over at the society in 2014 there'd already been enormous work done by my predecessor kathy uh, lazenbat to tackle backlogs of cataloging and also to add to make existing catalogs available online so that people could search the holdings of the society over the internet rather than having to come to the society to to search printed finding aids manually but there's always that there is always a lot more to be done when you when you have a, a collection which has been growing for almost 200 years uh, in an extraordinary number of of um, languages and a, and a diverse array of formats there's always um things that still needs to be um either have to have their metadata improved or to have it created from scratch. And we have a lot of um, what would now be considered grey literature. So pamphlets, off prints and things of that nature produced during the 19th century, which are often very rare and of great interest to, to scholars working today, but which, which aren't well catalogued. So that's one of the things that one of the projects I'm currently involved in. So that would be um, things that were designed as sort of throwaway things rather than published books. Is that right? Well, it's, it's more in the nature of research papers or contributions to, to, exchange, to, to, to exchanges. So the kinds, of, the, the kinds of things which would correspond to journal articles today um, and re research reports and this sort of thing, which, which were published, but would often be published in possibly for private circulation only or in very small print runs and because they wouldn't be bound or, or this sort of thing they they wouldn't necessarily survive that well and and the, and they're, they're always the last thing to be catalogued so you get a lot of inquiries who do you get them from who accesses your collection and, and what do they what are they concerned with finding out so our collection is because it is quite specialist for them for the most part so most of our readers, most of the people who use the collection tend to be from a, an academic or scholarly background because in order to understand or engage with collections, it tends to require a certain, a certain level of, a high level of existing knowledge. So we have scholars from, not just from across the UK, but from around the world who want to, to to see and to know about our collection. So we get inquiries from people from across Asia, um, United States, across Europe and beyond. Sorry, I've just lost my train of thought there. But we, we also want, but the collections are, are also of interest to wider audiences as well. So although most of the people who will actually come and physically use the collections in our reading room will tend to be from, from, from an academic background, on social media, audiences are much, much broader and we, 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 get, we, we, we know that there is a great deal of interest from, from the wider public in, in the collections that we hold. And the, the material holds a great deal of interest, both paintings and objects of great, of great aesthetic beauty, which can inspire people, which people can enjoy, and also the stories that our objects tell and the stories behind the objects' creation are things that are, 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 are of interest and to to a wider audience so 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 we we serve both a, an academic community but we also serve the wider public and our that's our, our our central mission is to promote scholarly exchange and public understanding of the history 
history and cultures of Asia and also of how British people in the past have sought to understand the history and cultures of Asia. Do you link up with any other organisations to um, work on specific projects or anything like that? Oh yes, absolutely. I mean, there are a number of Asiatic societies around the world, for one thing. So we have good links with, with a number of those organisations. So there, there are Asiat several Asiatic societies in India. The original Asiatic society was founded in, in Calcutta in 1784 by Sir William Jones. And that was the progenitor institution, really, for the founding of our organisation in 1823. That, that, it's, that society is still going strong today, as are several others in India. There are several Asiatic societies in, in China and Hong Kong, and other Asiatic societies across Southeast Asia, Japan, and, and uh, elsewhere. And we also collaborate with national museums, the national libraries, and other organizations across Asia. And we have good links with universities, learning societies, and other organizations in, in the UK and Europe as well. So, so, so we're very keen to collaborate with with other organizations wherever possible to improve understanding about the collections that we have and to help make them available to to more people both in the UK and Asia and, and everywhere else. Do you um, do any publications or anything like that, modern academic things? Oh, absolutely. So the society has has an, there's several ways the society tries to uh, fulfill its mission. Make free public access to its collections is one way it does that. But another way it does that is through publishing activities. So the society publishes academic monographs to help ensure that new scholarship on Asian studies it become, is made available. And we also publish a journal, the Journal of the Royal Asiatic Society, which has been published more or less continuously since the society was founded. So that's published four times a year and it includes academic articles and book reviews on the very wide ranging subjects that, I, that I've already alluded to. So you can find in, in, in a single issue, you can, you can find anything from um, history of photography in, in Hong Kong in the second half of the 19th century to the study of Persian linguistics in the 13th century and, and almost anything else that you could care to imagine. How far does your archive go back then? Because I mean you're talking about the Ottoman Empire, that used to be the Persian Empire and then obviously China and India have a long rich history going back quite some way. What's your oldest object? Oh well probably uh, we, we actually have a very small coin collection and I think I suspect that our oldest object is, is, is some, one of our coins. Uh, we have, we have Coins tend to be extreme. <laughs> a lot of coin collections contain extremely ancient objects. Um, so yeah. because so we have coins that I think are going back thousands of years old. But uh, in terms of our, we have a, our oldest manuscript is a palm leaf Buddhist manuscript from Nepal, which uh, I believe the correct pronunciation would be something like Prajna Paramita. Uh, no, sorry, I can't. I, it slips <laughs> my mind. Slip my mind. But the but the uh, yeah. So it's a our oldest manuscript is a Indian, uh, sorry, Nepali Buddhist manuscript, which is about a thousand years old. 
the archival holdings that we have, the personal papers that we have, go back really to the late 18th century. Of course, we have the society's own archive, which goes back to its founding in 1823. Wow. Um, our book collection, we, we, our oldest books are date from the late 16th century. Wow. Are there um, any particular challenges that come with managing this collection if you've got such a broad scope of um, material and age? Absolutely. So because it's a very linguistically diverse collection, so we have materials in dozens of different languages. And as I, I mentioned earlier, we only have two staff working with the collection. So we don't have the linguistic expertise in our staff to properly understand or even describe all of all of the materials that we have. But fortunately, we benefit from a lot of legacy catalogues. So most of the collections have been catalogued by scholars and experts over the over the over the decades so we're out we, we lean very heavily on those um, and we also are very lucky to benefit from the generosity of scholars working today who tend to generously lend us their expertise to help us catalog to interpret some of our archival collections so so that's one of that's one of the, the the ways that we are able to make our collections widely known the the challenge of actually managing a multi-format collection is also significant because we're a small organization, but as I said, we don't simply have books. Uh, we have a very uh, uh, wide range of physical formats and, being able, and, and making sure that all of those formats are kept and stored, conserved in appropriate conditions is, is, is something we're, we're very, Keen, keen to ensure and simply having a very old collection is a challenge in itself because old manuscripts and old books often need rebinding or other forms of, of preservation intervention and so that is that's an ongoing challenge as well what are your hopes for the future of the collection are you hoping for um, more expansion or uh, more diversity in audience what's your um, goal going forward well we want the collections to be to be used by as many people as possible so we want the collections to be we want the usage of the collections to increase that means not just the number of people coming in to use our collections in the in, in the reading room but also the number of people using our collections online so to do that we we need to continue to improve our cataloging and metadata. We're also very keen to digitize more and more of our collections. And we're very fortunate that over the last few years, we've, been able, we've seen an extraordinary proportion of our collection, particularly of our manuscript collections, being, being digitized thanks to partnerships with a number of institutions, including the Internet Archive, the National Library Board of Singapore. And we were also very fortunate to be able to launch a digital library in just over two and a half years ago, uh, which was developed for us by, by Max, and that was supported by the Friends of the National Libraries. That allows us to make our digital collections available online for free to people from all around the world. And that is something we're very pleased about. We, we, we take our responsibility to make the collections available to as many people as possible, particularly in Asia. We take that responsibility very seriously. And so we, we, we want to continue to make more material available online so that people can see it even you know without having to come to um, to our reading rooms
Oh, and we also want to take in more collections where, where we can, where they fit with our, you know, uh, we want to take in more collections that people now and people and, and future generations will want to see to understand the work that is being done today with, with Asian studies. You mentioned that you've got um, an enviable amount already digitized. If you are having, obviously, diverse languages, um, some of them will no longer be spoken, but I mean, India itself has well over 100 um, languages spoken today. Would you um, be open to sort of crowdsourcing translation and things like that? Like I know some other institutions have. Sure. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's we're very keen to to be able to use the passion and knowledge of of people who want to use our collections to improve our understanding of them and to be able to share that understanding with a wider public. So that that that's the the, the public's enthusiasm about cultural heritage is is a vital resource that that it should be should be used as as much as possible. So yes, we're we're keen to explore explore ways to do that. Because I um, remember at the start of this um, coronavirus lockdown, there was, I think, people got wind of this project that um, people doing weather studies, they had all this data to transcribe and someone just got hold of the link, spread it around and people sitting at home just typed all this data out and it was, it would have taken ages for someone at the, the archive or collection yeah. done, but people powers really helped them and as you say, you don't have the expertise for every single language, particularly that you have um, access to. I think that would be really interesting to hear, even like young people get interested in um, like traditional languages that you know their parents maybe speak and, and they don't see the point of and things like that. Absolutely. What, in your opinion, is the most interesting item that you hold? Well, for me personally, the archive of a man called Thomas Manning is the is the most interesting and the most personally meaningful um, thing that we, that the society has. Um, Thomas Manning, born in 1772, and he died in 1840, and he was one of the first British people to study Chinese. He was quite an exceptional individual. He was a mathematician originally, but he decided that he wanted to study China because he thought that as an ancient and sophisticated civilization, it must have, there must be lots of things that Britain could learn from the study of China. And at that time, there was very limited knowledge about Chinese cultural traditions in Britain and indeed elsewhere in Europe. So Manning really de dedicated his life to trying to understand Chinese culture, the manners and customs of ordinary people and also its literary and philosophical traditions. So he went to China in 1807 to, to try and learn the language and also to look for opportunities to enter and explore the country. And at the time, it was, it was absolutely prohibited for Europeans mm, yeah. to enter into the Chinese empire. But the, in, in the course of trying to, en to enter the country, he actually attempted an overland journey from India via Tibet with just one... A man, a Chinese Catholic, as an assistant. And he got as far as Lhasa, the capital of Tibet. He was the first Englishman to visit Lhasa, and indeed no other Englishman got there for almost 100 years after him. While he was there, he met the Dalai Lama on several occasions. He had a really extraordinary career, um, but the, 
it has not been that it's not that well known partly because for most of the 20th century there was a real dearth of primary sources about manning's life but in 2015 the society was able to acquire a substantial archive of letters and uh, notebooks and other documents about Ma by manning which uh tell us so much more about 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 his life and, and and what he was what he was trying to do so that's um so that for me is one of the most extraordinary things the society that the society has and it speaks very much to the the intellectual world in which the society was founded in the early 19th century and i think that that's something which is that there's there's a, a yeah a story which which people will be very eager to to yeah. know more about oh and it's 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 uh it's i should also add it's his archive is now completely digitized and available on the society's digital library he sounds like an interesting person because i feel as though at that time and um, people were just interested in expanding the british empire and imposing um colonialism on them and, and our way was the best way but he sounds very refreshing that he he knows that there's a lot of things to learn from other cultures yes indeed i mean i think that's that's a common um that, that that's a, a, a common impression that people have about about that period and of course the late 18th early 19th century was a time when british imperial territories were expanding particularly in, in in south asia but at the same time it was a period when europe british and other europeans were learning much more about asian cultures and in the late 18th early 19th century particularly there was a great deal of interest and even enthusiasm for the cultural traditions of asia in britain and a desire to know more about them too to enrich british cultural traditions so it's it's far from the case that every instance of, of European interest in Asia in, at that time was motivated by um, colonialism or, or other forms of imperial, uh, imperial ambition. Would you say that the society kind of takes after that ethos of um, cultural exchange rather than just collecting a foreign culture? Yes, exactly. Um, the society was, was founded in order to promote interest in uh, positive interest about asian culture within within britain and it's been it's been very keen to so so the two so two of the things the society was was focusing on in its early decades were both making available books manuscripts paintings and so on that had been collected by europeans in asia making those available to people so that other british scholars could access those materials and learn more about the the traditions of Asia but the other thing that it was very keen to do was to um, support the publishing of translations of classic works of um, oriental literature and um, so that of course there had been some works published in in earlier times but the, the society wanted to get more and more works of Asian Asian literary works published in European languages so that the the, the richness of Asian cultural traditions could be better understood by by the European publics. And you say that um, Manning in particular, all his stuff is available to view online and you've got other things up there as well. What kind of things do you have for people to view? Uh, the digital library contains, so it reflects the diversity of our, of our holdings. So it has a number of different 
manuscript collections online. Um, so we have manuscripts, uh, we have Persian manuscripts, Malay manuscripts. We have a, a very large number of Indian manuscripts on the digital library. We also have a lot of artwork. So we have paintings from by European and Asian artists from India, China, Japan, and elsewhere. We also have an increasing number of photographs scanned and made available on the digital library as well. So those photographs from India, China, Hong Kong, and across Southeast Asia from the 1860s up to the interwar period. So something for everyone. Oh, well, I hope so. I think that I think that whatever your interest in Asian studies, there, there's likely to be something on the on the digital library that will, that will appeal. And if there isn't, then I'm very keen to to know so that we can try to uh, prioritize next. So you invite uh, comments from listeners. Yes, by all means. Yes, very 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 keen to engage with 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 our audience. And thank you for agreeing to speak to me today. It's been really interesting hearing about the work you've been doing. Um, is there anywhere else you want to point people um, in the direction of, such as how, how to get hold of your publications and, and things like that? Um, I would just encourage people to, to visit our website, which is royalasiaticsociety.org. And we're also very active on, on, on social media. We publish a weekly blog, which tends to highlight our activities and and our collections and we've been continuing to publish that once a week even during the the recent lockdown so um yes uh please 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 get in touch perfect well hopefully listeners will do that and have many questions about it to annoy you with with more inquiries and keep you busy that's what we're here for <laughs> wonderful thank you thank you very much <laughs>